welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Okay, our speaker today is someone I've known only slightly for 10, 11 years. <laughs> Actually, I've known Catherine probably about nine years, somewhere around there, and um, she called me one time and uh, asked me to be her sponsor, and actually, she sponsors me. I mean, you know, it's kind of like, who sponsors who here? But um, she and I have gone through lots of times of uh, growth, sharing, confronting, and loving each other for the last several years together and and walking this program. And um, her sharing with me has been a tremendous um, help in my spiritual program and my growth. And um, so I'm ask you to welcome Catherine. Thank you, everyone. My name is Catherine. I'm a sexaholic. Thank you, Sylvia, for that most warm welcome. I feel very warmly welcomed here in Rochester. Um, I've been to this hotel now three times. This is my third time. And I want to tell you that I was here in 1988 for uh, the conference that was in Rochester, and that was a very important conference for me because um, I had an amends to make to someone, and I worked with my sponsor with that amends. It was a direct amends. Sent it out, and about two weeks later, I met the man that I would marry and married him a year later and came back here on my honeymoon. And that was real special. We toured New York, and it was really quite wonderful. And now I'm back again. Through the grace of God and very generous fellowship, very generous fellowship, um, we usually introduce ourselves and say our, our sober time. And I have been sexually sober since February 7th, 1983, a dated time through the mercy of a loving God and a fellowship that continues to bless me and keep me. I'm very grateful for that. Um, my topic uh, that was assigned to me was trudging the road of happy destiny. And um, I've always really... I've always really loved a vision for you, that, that last reading that we have. Before our meetings close, and I always felt that that was really specially written for me, because um, I've trudged the road of happy destiny through quite a few different areas, <laughs> and it looks like I'm going to be trudging through a few more before my time's up. Um, but I just wanted to know um, who uh, who's out there, and, and uh, I just would like a sense of how where people are in terms of you know their time in the program. Also, just want to know um, how much time do I have to speak? Because I want to let some folks speak afterwards. I want to have some sharing time. Is anybody timing me? Okay. Can someone can someone give me a minute at like like a minute to three so that we can have you know a few minutes for sharing and stuff? Okay, I'm sure someone will remind me. Um, Okay, uh, how many people are here uh, with less than 30 days of sobriety? Can you raise your hand? Okay, and less than, uh, or uh, 90 days, between 90 days and 6 months? 
Okay. Anybody? And what about the rest of you? Uh, between six months and a year? Okay. So, so not a, a real large number, but a, but enough people. So it's important, you know, for us to share what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. And um, it's real fun to get into, you know, all the old stuff and and remember that stuff. And I just don't want to get too wrapped up because, like the fellow was saying last night, um, you know, our, our stories really beguile us a great deal. And uh, you know, recently I sat through a very lengthy story in a meeting, and uh, the meeting, uh, literally, the story was about 45 minutes long, but sometimes those long stories can pull stuff out of me that I don't know is there, but I hope um, to just keep it brief. Um, I'm a charter member of SA, <laughs> let's put it that way. Uh, I was out there qualifying for quite a while. I was I worked very hard to get here. Um, um, I, I'm, I'm one of the people who really identifies as being a sex addict from, from, a, from a small child. And um, I was a voyeur at a, at a very young age. Um, I just had the humbling experience of getting together with a childhood friend. And because my family moved so much, um, it was possible to just really leave the past behind. And my family did that quite successfully. And um, I hadn't talked to anybody I'd gone to grade school with um, since I left. You know, and uh, my family moved from St. Cloud, Minnesota. And recently I, I met this, uh, this old friend and we had, uh, dinner together on, uh, New Year's Day. And she showed me a picture of a woman with whom I had had, um, a kind of a, a prepubescent, you know, thing with. And I swear to God, if I didn't have that 10 years of sobriety, I would have run out of that house screaming. It just would have been so painful for me because I, you know, I've shared this stuff, I've inventoried it, I've, I've put it on my eight-step list. If I ever needed to make a direct amends, I'm sure God will show me how. But, um, you know, time takes time, and, 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 I'm, and I'm, I endorse people who want to, you know, work the steps like Dr. Bob did, you know, in like two weeks. He was running around Akron making his amends and that kind of thing. But I think for some of us, we really do need time before we can go out and face those people and look them in the eye and say, boy, I was wrong. And I mean, the depth of the wrongness is so deep with us. I, I, I'm, an, I'm also an alcoholic, and, and you know, I, I was just, I was just reading a vision for you in the, in the big book. But there's something about what sexaholic people do to themselves and others that, that goes beyond just, you know, making a scene at a party or something like that. You know, it, it, I'm, I'm not trying to be funny, I'm really. Uh, you know, it, it's so very deep, and it hurts so much. It hurts ourselves so much, and it hurts the other people so much. Um, that, uh, you know, I've had a very merciful God, and I really haven't had to make that many direct amends, and, and some of the amends that I've had to make were were not taken very well, which, you know, just taught me that it wasn't time yet. But um, I think my mic left. I don't know where or how, but anyway. Um, when I was growing up, I was very fixated on sex. I didn't really understand what it was about, but I just knew that there was something there and there was a power greater than myself. I understood that quite well. And uh, things were reasonably okay in my fairly large family until we moved to um, from from Minnesota, which had I had family members. I had my grandma there. She used to come in the winter. I had cousins. We used to visit the cousins. It was all very friendly and familial and very nice. And... Um, Something happened. My father took a better job in Michigan, and uh, the family moved. As I said, I never heard from any of my schoolmates again. I never saw my cousins again after that until uh, about four years ago. I went back to Minnesota and, and visited with one cousin and another one over the phone. 
So it was as if this curtain was just sort of drawn on this childhood that seems really pretty benign. And, and uh, of course, you know, the seeds were there, but things just really went to pot after that in my family. Um, my mother uh, started a, a graduate school experience that would really take her away from the family. Um, my father didn't seem very happy where he was. There was a lot of fighting. There was um, some abuse. Uh, my dad... Uh, for some reason, his Victorian upbringing wouldn't let him get mad at my mother, but it was okay to get mad at me, and he'd get mad at me a lot. Not just mad, I mean, he would just be in a rage. Sometimes it would be at me, sometimes it would be just generally, but um, I just got this sense that I had this really overpowering father, and I couldn't figure out how to get him off my back. Um, and the other thing that made it real confusing was I had sisters with whom he was really kindly, you know, sort of, he was... I mean, he was fatherly to me, but there was there was an undercurrent there that was real hostile. Um, anyway, I really wasn't very popular in high school. Um, I uh, found out later that my mother set me up with her um, this man she was having an affair with with the son of this man, uh, which really devastated me. But again, I didn't see that until 1983 when I was at, after I'd become sober. I think the knowledge of that would just have I mean, it was, you know, it's there, but it's like we can't really quite acknowledge it. And and I know that it's easy to beat ourselves up for being in denial, but I think denial can save can save our lives sometimes, really. You know, because if we're in so much pain, we just we just can't handle it. Just can't handle it. We just, you know, we just go into whatever that is that that place. And and that's happened to me in sobriety over things like things that hurt me, like you know, a miscarriage or something like that, like believing, 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 and that kind of thing. Um, anyway, my mother had an affair uh, with this person, and uh, that was a great big family secret, a very painful family secret. And the children would would joke that the, the last baby she had, which was against you know her her will, I suppose you could say, uh, you know, was it was it my dad's baby? Was it someone else's baby? I mean, that that was that was a heck of a thing to make a joke about in in the family. But that's I mean that's how sick the family was, and the family got even sicker. Um, my parents kind of split up in different in different towns, and uh, Subsequently, I went into college, and my my number one uh, interest was to get into a sexual relationship. That was my number one interest, and I'm and I'm not exaggerating at all. I really didn't care about my grades. Uh, I really didn't care about anything. You know, that was the most important thing. So I I found this one of these addictive relationships, and then found another one that was even that was even sicker. And uh, you know, at that time we were you know I was considered a lightweight when I was only smoking pot about three or four times a week. Uh, you know, there were people who were doing it three or four times a day. And, you know, um, I mean, I knew my limit. It wasn't much of a limit, but I knew at least part of my limit. Um, and uh, I got into a real abusive relationship with someone, and I literally did not know who I was in this relationship at all. And I think drugs probably had a big part of that. Um, but just the fear of not knowing at all who I was in the morning. You know, who was who, who was waking up, who was who, who was whom, whatever, it was it was it was it was a nightmare. It was a nightmare. So my my way of dealing with that was not to say, well, geez, what's going on with me, or how much, or, you know, am I drinking? I know my aunt at one point said to me, well, it seems like you know you need to look at how much marijuana you're smoking. I thought, well, everybody's smoking marijuana. What's what's wrong with that? I mean, every you know, literally everyone I knew was doing it. So I, I drugs couldn't have been the problem. You know, um, I thought it's this guy. He's the problem. So I thought, well, get another one. You know, get several. And uh, does that sound like a sexaholic? 
literally, I mean, really, I couldn't, I couldn't figure out how to get away from this guy. I mean, he had this iron grip on me, you know. So I did a combination of things. I got uh, a few other boyfriends and I moved. So um, the geographical seemed to work fairly well for a time. But what I found was, it was like what I heard the last speaker say. You know, it was like if we were around people who were normal, there was something real uneasy about it. Like, you know, when is the other shoe going to drop and stuff like that. So um, for me, it was this this void. And I realized this void was something that I felt when I didn't have my mom around or my parents. Or that, you know, that sense of that, that protection. You know, I wanted that protection. And, and we learn in the program that that protection does not come from a human power. That protection comes from God. But, you know, I didn't really have too much God at that time. And I figured I just had to get more protection. That was the problem. You know, I could get away from these people if I just had more people who would, you know, take care of me and stuff like that. So, um, I really consider, uh, the bottom, years of my experience, it wasn't just one experience, although I had several that were really quite traumatizing. Uh, from about 1975 to 19, the early 80s, uh, was kind of, I was headed for a very um, slow but sure bottom in this program. Um, living with my mother again was just a series of enabling her with me, me with her. Uh, the boyfriends would come to the house, the little kids were in the house. I couldn't understand why my father was being such a fuddy-duddy, like, you know, uh, What's with these people here? Why are they here? You know, why didn't my mother say, would you please get your own place if you're going to do this? No, because, you know, we were protecting each other. And and so I had all those family secrets uh, that I had to hold on to. And uh, being the eldest child, I was expected to be the hero and, you know, and hold on to all the secrets. Finally, my mother left my father with his great uh, flourish, took one of the children along, didn't say where she was going, only she told me where she was going. And... Uh, I got I got uh, I got in touch with this uh, right before my mother's visit out in New York. We actually had a very good visit, but I, I really had to open up that stuff and send it away before she came because, you know, sometimes it takes on a life of its own, even when it's been years and years and it's been inventoried, it, it comes back. So again, you know, here I am holding the family secrets, and uh, my parents made this this great, you know, renewal or whatever it was, but I just couldn't figure out why I felt so unclean inside. I had all this stuff inside, so. You know, in the meantime, I was, uh, I don't use the word dating. I didn't date people. You know, I took them hostage. I took them captive. And I had about three of those going on at once. And um, and I couldn't, I, I wanted to get away from my family, and it was time for me to get a job, and I couldn't get a job in Portland, even though I liked Portland very much. So I took a job in New Orleans, and um, it was... uh. It was the beginning of the end for me. Uh, there was no place to go. I didn't have any serious boyfriend. I couldn't seem to find anybody who would put up with my nonsense. So I thought, well, you know, if some's good, more's better. And uh, the more ended up being about four different people, you know, who were all invited to my house. With a house, I, we, I was having a party at my house, and here were these people, and I was sleeping with this one, and he was over here in this room, and then over in here. This one was over here, and that one was over there. And I was just shaken. I was just shaken, and I knew something was really wrong, and it, literally, literally the next day, I swear, the timing was impeccable, as God always is, and um, Roy's column appeared in Dear Abby, and I do believe I'm the only person who actually was 12-stepped by that column and stayed stayed sober from that 1981 column, but he signed it Set Free in, L- in L.A., Set Free in L.A., and talked about masturbating and prostitution. Of course, well, I don't sex for hire. Women don't do stuff like that. But, 
You know, when I got a hold of the pamphlet and I saw that question, the 21 questions, and it says, did you seek a lower environment? Well, I can relate to the lower environment. I can relate to every other question. You know, just because I didn't put money on the counter, quid pro quo did not mean, you know, that I was not buying it, selling it, trading it, and giving it away. And it was, uh, it was, it was really awful. I was not to get sober for another year and a half, but I thought I'd try the half measure approach of the committed relationship. Uh, speaking for myself, of course, uh, it was, it, you know, it, it, it sort of tided me over to where I could really trust God for it, but at that time I was kind of weaning myself from the, um, bisexual option, from the adultery option, you know, all these options that we, that we have, and, and again, I always, I always figured, well, you know, how important is it? What does it really matter? Um, I would, I was trying church. Church wasn't working. I would go to confession, and I would have these three say, "Well, you're not supposed to do that." <laughs> and I thought, "Well, I don't want to hear that from you. You're, you're a priest. You're, you don't have to deal with these problems. You're, you're not even really single. I mean, come on, get out of here." So, um, it was, it was, it was really pathetic. It was really pathetic. Um, I'm really grateful that I did move to Texas because I really don't think I could have hung on very much longer and the darkness was really overcoming me and thank God I had um, I had this person who uh, finally wouldn't put up with my nonsense and he left me and I, I think that thank God for the men who leave women who need to get sober because I think that's what it really takes. I don't think it's the same for the men. I, I really don't. I think a lot of men are in, you know, in marriages and their wives go, oh, okay, well, now what, you know, but, but. For me, if I would have had any other option, if he would have hung on just a little bit longer, or maybe I could have finagled that wedding that I was after, um, it never, I never would have gotten sober. I never would have gotten sober. I know that. And I'm, so I'm very grateful that, you know, God was very gentle. I'd had periods of abstinence and that kind of thing. So I knew that sex was optional, sort of, you know, kind of optional. I could kind of believe that. Um, I was sharing earlier this morning about having to start new groups. I didn't have to start my first group. It was there in Fort Worth, and Kevin was there and some other people. And uh, I really hated having to go. I heard someone say that this morning. I really hated having to go to that meeting. I thought, why am I different? Why do I have to do this? I don't know anybody else who has to go to a sexaholics meeting. But, you know, it's like, okay, you know what you have. What are you going to do about it? I had the problem firmly in hand, but what was I going to do about it? I had to have the solution, and I knew that that was what was going to work for me. Um, I didn't really have too much of a sponsor, although I did use one of the old-timer members um, who was actually very kind to me. And I, I actually had met this person about a year before, and um, I remember sharing in the meeting, and someone told me, no crosstalk. And I thought I had all this stuff to say. You know, I was a teacher, and, you know, I, I, I had a lot to say. And they said, no, you don't. You keep quiet. Uh, you know, we're sharing. <laughs> That was hard to accept. Um, I continued to feel real different, real different. Uh, I found out I was an alcoholic, which actually, again, saved my life because if I would have just had a meeting to go to every one or two or three weeks whenever I felt the Spirit moved me to go or whatever, I really don't think that I just would have had the fellowship that I had to have, even though I was doing everyone's inventory on a continuous basis and knew that about 90% of you belonged where I was having to go you know, in, in those rooms. But, you know, again, we have to keep the focus on ourselves. And, and I'm the one who wanted to get sober. I'm the one who wanted to be sober. And I told myself that I could never have one of those relationships. I could never sell my soul again. And I didn't care if I ever had another man in my life. I could not 
do that. That there was something, I was starting to get a sense of self-esteem. I could not do that ever again. And so, um, I tried dating a little bit. That was pretty much of a disaster. You know, I'd, I'd always pick these guys who were getting out of a divorce or, uh, you know, just so inappropriate. Well, fortunately, you know, it would be like infatuation. But I heard this woman say, it's okay to have stuff like that. You just don't have to act on it. And I noticed that people did start getting a little bit weller. The ones that I seemed to be um, attracted to started getting a little bit weller. But I really didn't have that much at all. And um, I think one of the hardest things it's been for me to pass on uh, where I'm living is uh, a lot of people have six months or that they'll get their year and then they're like, and um, I, I just don't really think that sexaholic people really ought to be in the business of spending a lot of time dating. Uh, we have another agenda, you know, we really do. And it begins with L, <laughs> at least it did with me. And, and you know, and my deal was, Maybe they're marriage partners. Maybe they're, that's my future husband sitting across the table from me and this kind of thing. I mean, everybody does this. We all know it. But but it's like I can't be in the present moment. I couldn't be in the present moment. I was so busy worrying about was I going to have a slip or, you know, what was I going to do? And I, I can really say that I think the biggest dating experience I had before I met my husband was maybe going out four or five times with somebody who was just clearly not for me. But, you know, it was like I remember telling well, I don't have sex before marriage. I mean, can you imagine telling someone you barely know, but, you know, this is how appropriate I am. The guy says, well, hey, this is not a big deal. This is part of my religious beliefs. I thought, you mean it's, it's, it could be normal? It could be like a normal thing not to have sex before marriage or whatever? And, I mean, really, how distorted, how distorted we, 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 we are with, with reality. I mean, that we think that the stuff we did was what everybody else is out there doing. I mean, that's the insanity of, of the illness. Oh, well, everybody else is committing adultery. Everybody else, uh, you know, has a total obsession to masturbate or, you know, have affairs or, you know, whatever the thing is. No. Everybody else doesn't. Sorry. You know, I'm afraid not. Um, so, uh, that really, um, anyway, I, I felt uh, something had happened to me. I'd had a, a physical assault, uh, happened to me in 1985, and I kept thinking that, that my fate was to be in these really remote areas with no family members around, and having this career that made me feel really lonely and not part of it all. And see, I think part of that is just, you know, the sexaholic that I am. Um, I didn't really have a good fellowship, and I, I just want to say, when I hear people, like the fellow last night, and I hear that kind of recovery after only three years of sobriety, and what it took for some of the rest of us, to get to, you know, even halfway, you know, talking straight. Uh, that's what a powerful fellowship will do. It, it's going to straighten you. It's going to straighten us out. And to have to do it with two or three people or maybe a little bitty group over here or maybe, you know, a conference call once a month or um, a conference every six months, it's going to take longer. And it took me longer. It really did. And Jeff likes to say that it's, it's the people who stood on you know, it's the shoulders that they stand on and stuff. But, you know, we've, it's been a long haul. It's been a really long haul. And I, that feeling of, um, being part of until I came to that first conference, uh, that was in, oh, no, it was, I'm sorry, it was in St. Louis. In, it was at Christmas time at that time. 
1986, and I was carrying around the feeling of being really alone and different all that time, and that's a long time to feel like that. And the shame, the shame, oh, a sexaholic woman and all this stuff, and everybody else was like, well, so what? You know, it was on my fourth step. Well, I didn't feel that way. I really felt different. So um, I'm really glad I got with you people. I ended up leaving Texas. It was in a, a big, you know, I had to do it in a really terrible way and trash myself and all that kind of stuff. But I stayed sober. I found out I had another issue that I had to deal with, which had to do with money. And I got, I had a lot of debt when I came and I found those rooms and they've been carrying me also. Um, but I wanted to get back with my family. And I just want to say too that, um, you know, at that time I tried to get back with them, but there, but, but I wasn't ready for it. Or maybe they weren't ready for it too. And I, I met my husband, Danny, and, um, uh, and it looked like, we, we, you know, we put it out. I kept putting it out. I worked with Sylvia. I worked with another woman, my A sponsor, and I said, well, what am I supposed to do? I knew that yeah, I knew that I was supposed to do something. I figured that I should probably be somewhere with this person so I could find out, you know, was he the one for me and all this kind of stuff, although I'd had quite a few clear signals and I felt pretty comfortable about it. But uh, nothing happened out on the West Coast for us at that time. So I moved to New York, and I knew that New York was going to be kind of a snake pit and... uh but it wasn't it wasn't in the sense that I thought it would be, but it was more like so what? So what about your time? You know, I would get that attitude a lot and you know that was the best thing for me. I because I was in Portland and those people just loved me and they just oh Catherine, tell us about your experience or do this or please, you know, we want you to do this with the retreat and they were like, Who are you? And why do you think you can come here and tell us how to do it? We've been doing it just fine without you. Thank you very much. And entire meetings disappeared, the ones I started going to. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. There was a, there was a meeting on Wednesday nights I would go to, and the Esanons were in the other room, and that meeting died. You know, and that was going to be my meeting. And, uh, But I took it personally. But but you know, and I and I fought with people, and I told them they were wrong, and they really liked that too. You know, people really like to hear that they're wrong, and that and that they're not doing it. You know, the way that they're supposed to be doing it. But but see, I felt like this. I learned to say it in a different way. I didn't have any. My message wasn't any any different really. But I'd say, look, essay isn't for everybody. That's what I'd always preface my message. Essay isn't for everybody, but. People like me, people who, you know, this is the last house on the block for people like us. You know, I tried a committed relationship, and I was usually in several of them at once. So, so it, it just didn't quite work. And, you know, and I got to the point where I just couldn't fool around anymore. You know, I had to have it. I, I had to go to any length. I had to have this program, and I wasn't willing to, to take one more delay or, you know, half measure. I had to have it. And, I did gradually find there were people who wanted essay like that too. And um I sort of backed out when, when things really got uh things really got angry and, and I'd sit there and, and justify why I felt like essay should be essay and all this kind of stuff. It was uh it seemed like it took forever. It seemed like it took forever, but but it really didn't. Um and uh Kind of simultaneously while all that was happening, you know, things were kind of getting rougher at home. Um, 
my, Danny and I had this wonderful, I, I hate to use the word romantic, but it, and, you know, it, it was a sober kind of romantic relationship. And, um, you know, and he would take me places, he would meet me at the train after work, and I think really this was about me learning to bond with another person because I was real good at doing it myself, but I wasn't really too good at doing it, anything with somebody else. So, um, you know, I learned to trust my husband and, and, um, and his judgment and that kind of thing, but as I shared with you a year ago, I was pretty uh, perplexed when I came to this conference. My, hu- my husband um, really wasn't too interested in Esnon anymore. Um, as soon as my daughter was born, he seemed to have this entire new interest, which could not seem to in- include me. You know, my daughter would be there. It was like, you know, he would just, he just couldn't focus on anything else. And I understood this was part of, you know, the adjustment, but it just kept going on and on. And, um, and I was, I was pretty upset about it and angry. And then, of course, you know, the no sex and, and I couldn't understand that. And it wasn't, it wasn't like contractual the way we try to, you know, encourage it, like, you know, we agree to this. There was nothing really agreed on. It was just sort of like dwindling. Well, that kind of the bottom in the marriage, uh, seemed like it was last summer. And, um, I was visiting my folks. We had just gone to this conference and the conference was, was full of fights. And, uh, and, uh, it was mainly around the baby, but, you know, it was really about power and control and that kind of thing. And, um, I actually got to the point where I hated him. You know, and I thought, I really wish that you would just go away and leave me alone. And and I thought, this is blasphemy. I'm this essay recovering person, and I hate my husband right now, this minute, you know. And uh, so we we tried some therapy, and it, it was kind of expensive, and, and I kept, you know, casting about, like, oh, what are we going to do? And, you know, we still had the problems with my baby and, and this and that. Well... One day I, I was talking to my friend Linda and I was telling her all the things my husband wasn't doing. And she said, boy, you're powerless. I said, huh? I said, powerless over what? She said, you're powerless over your partner and your marriage. And I said, I really hate the way that feels. You know, but, but I was ready. And do you know that they have, it's not SAS and on couples, but in some ways, I don't want to say it's better, but it's more structured and there are tools, but they have what they call the Chapter 9. Now, the downside for this sexaholic is they have same-sex couples in that, in that, in that meeting, which, you know, it's sort of like, I'm very fascinated by that kind of stuff. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. But I just try to say, okay, you know, we have the same issues, we're just couples, we're just in the room, we're just in the circle, we're sharing. And, um, just want to say too that, uh, had another kind of, bummer experience a couple of weeks ago where I heard my husband use the same tone of voice my dad used and I thought I said man that sounds really that sounds really vicious you sound really vicious to me and he said well I feel vicious and and I thought oh you do huh so we just kind of avoided each other for that day which we had really never done in four and a half years of marriage we'd really never purposely totally avoided each other and when I was in this room he got up and left and walked to the next room we hadn't had a day like that. And I went to my group that night, my Sunday night Brooklyn group. Jack started it. Wasn't her. And um, this woman gave this extremely long, detailed story. And it came up that that was my dad. And my husband was talking like my dad. And I hoped and prayed before I got married I would never hear that voice in my marriage. And I heard it that day. And I was able to cry about it. But I still didn't understand it. I didn't understand it. And, you know, God gives us the answers. I was sitting last night with with, with, with my friend, 
And my friend who's in this program, she, in, the, in the couples program, she said, she said, Catherine, maybe Dan's getting permission to be, who, you know, to, to, to be who he is in all of whatever that is with you. Finally. Because I married this man who seemed like goody two shoes in the sense of like, we always do the right thing, we're always on time, we're always appropriate, we're always this and we're always that. And I thought, doesn't he ever just lose it? You know, doesn't he ever just kind of say, I'm going out of control, I can't stand it, I hate everything. You know, he, he's, he's never really done that with me. And so, so I, I don't, what I want to do is like get him to stop it, right? But what I'm really supposed to do is just sort of back off and let him be whoever he is because he's learning who he is too. See, I always think it's about me, 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 me. But it's not. You know, they have to learn about who they are. And for all of us, you know, who are always so eager to get that partnership and get that relationship and get that marriage, you know, there has to be a certain amount of, I don't know, maybe, I don't know if it's self-esteem or just the sense of who I am that you can be really inappropriate and that's not going to destroy me. And I'm not going to go out about it. It's like, okay, I don't like it. I'm not happy that you're expressing yourself in that way, but I'm still okay. And I know that I didn't cause that. But, but see, all this takes a lot of work. And I, and in the moment, I may not know what's going on there. So that's why I have to kind of just, you know, keep offering it up and saying, okay, well, what, you know, what does all this mean? You know, and, and if he's real angry all the time, you know, I have, I can stop saying, what did I do? Maybe I didn't do anything. Maybe I don't have anything to do with it at all. So just back off and let them be who they are. Thank you. I just want to say, too, I heard something really beautiful from a member this morning who was in the old-timer meeting. Anna, I've had a very tumultuous relationship with my family, as I'm sure you might have gathered, and last summer was just, I thought, if it's like this again, I don't know who, who to divorce first, my family or my husband. You know, that's a joke. So... <laughs> Anyway, it had just been real tough, and, and I thought, I, I, you know, I really want to go out there because I remember what it was like to have, you know, the cousins and, and, and the nephews and the nieces and stuff. It's just a really wonderful experience. Um, but And I hope I'm not romanticizing it, but I went back uh, to Washington last weekend, and I have to say that none of my family members raised their voices to one another. Everybody seemed happy to see each other, and I had heard the report from Christmas was just the same way, that nobody got drunk, nobody got really out of control, and they really liked being with each other. And anyway, the, the, the member who was sharing said that, you know, he was very grateful to be, that, that this, the sister was in his life and had done for him and all this stuff, and, and I thought, if I ever heard that, I think I'd, you know, I could die, I, I could just die and that would, you know, that would be it. That would be it for, to hear that from a family member that, that, that they had really, their lives had changed because of me. And I don't know if I'll ever hear that. Maybe I don't need to hear that. But, um, I'd just like to offer up that, you know, I, I, I thought that at different stages that we were really, you know, at a certain point in healing. And it seems like the healing just keeps going and going and going. And so I just want to encourage and invite people who feel like They'll never get well. They're always going to hate this or that or they can't stand the program or whatever. It's like, it's real, it's so different today. It's so wonderful. And I think it's partly because I keep praying for all those people. No matter what. I don't care how I feel about them on a daily basis. I just pray for them anyway. And, and prayer does change things. It most definitely changes things. 
So, um, can't think of anything else I want to say except that, uh, please pray for me. I really am afraid to go to a new place and start essay all over again. I have this fear that, you know, I started meeting and nobody came. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.